Amen. Heavenly Father, that's our prayer as we come before you this morning. We do pray that as we hear from your word, that um, we will open our hearts to you, great God, that every area of our lives will be open to your work, to, the, to your spirit to speak into, we pray. And so we just commit ourselves to you now and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's really great to be sharing with you, particularly today, as Andrew said, we're launching into our four-week church-wide series in Galatians. And I want to say at the start that no matter where you are on the journey of faith, whether you have been a Christian for many years or you are just exploring faith, this is a fantastic book of the Bible to study. And I want to say it's not too late to join up. If you're not yet in a group, you're thinking, I've missed out, it's not too late. Um, just jump online or talk to someone at the info table. We'd love to get you into a group as well. And I want to say a special thanks to all of our Connect Group leaders right across the church. They do a phenomenal job opening their homes, giving their time. Uh, and in fact, I'd love it if you are a Connect Group leader here this morning, just to stand up where you are, just for a moment. If there's any Connect Group leaders, just jump on your feet. I know there should be quite a few of you around. Don't be shy. Fantastic. Can we put our hands together and just thank all of these Connect Group leaders? Stay standing, stay standing. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. I want to pray at the start of this series while the Connect Group leaders stay standing. I'm going to ask God to bless them as they lead groups. And we want to pray right at the start of this series that God would speak to us powerfully through His Word, by His Holy Spirit. So let me pray right now. Let's join together in prayer. Lord Jesus, right at the outset of this series, we want to pray for the outpouring of your blessing. We want to pray for these connect group leaders, Lord, that you'll bless them, anoint them by your Holy Spirit. Thanks for Pastor Dan as well, Lord, who's coordinated so much of that. But wherever we are on the journey, Lord, I pray that you would speak powerfully into the lives of each and every one of us through your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might be transformed, is our prayer, transformed by the power of the gospel and know more of your love and freedom and presence in our lives. We want to become more like you, Jesus. So we open our hearts to you now at the start of this series. We ask this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much. Well, it's been said that Galatians is like dynamite. Uh, it's not a very long book, just six chapters long. And they're not very long chapters, but it's true. There is dynamite in this book of the Bible. Just to give you an example of this, in the late 1730s, there was a little group of believers who changed the world. They were led by John and Charles Wesley, and they literally saw thousands of people flood into the kingdom. It's been described as, by historians as the Great Awakening. You might, may have heard of it. And in the beginning was this little group who were searching for God. They were seekers, John and Charles Wesley, some other friends as well. They were seeking and they were trying to find God and they were trying to have an experience of his reality in their lives. They were trying to connect with him. And what happened in the midst of this is that one night it began to break through and one of the number of people who were gathered there, a man by the name of William Holland, got hold of Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. And in the very beginning of Martin Luther's commentary, there's a preface in which he tries to outline the basic argument of the book of Galatians. He tries to summarize it and put it down succinctly. And so William Holland brought it to Charles Wesley and he said, let's read it to each other. So the two of them and a few other people began to read this preface of Galatians to each other. And William Holland wrote this, he's journaled down what happened that night. This is what he said. He said, Mr. Charles Wesley read the preface aloud 
And at a certain point, he says, there came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. My companions, perceiving me so affected, fell on their knees and prayed. When I afterwards went into the street, I could scarcely the ground, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod on. Huge, huge moment that just is taking place here. This is the turning point of his life as he was listening to Paul's message, this, this summary of Paul's message, this basic theme in Galatians. And what William Holland did after this experience, he did what any rational person would do, he took this preface of Martin Luther's Galatians, and he started to go around everyone he knew, and he began to read it to them. He just kept reading it to others, um, night after night. And he went to men and women and people he knew, and um, according to um, the, the story and historians, William Holland also took this to John Wesley, read it to him as well, and he said, John Wesley said, he said, my heart was strangely warmed as he heard this truth, and he felt, he felt I did, he said, I felt I did trust Christ in this particular moment. And this would lead to revival, to the great awakening through the truth held in the book of Galatians. Lord, do it again. Who knows what might happen at the end of these four weeks. So that, wouldn't that be fantastic? But I want you to see that Galatians is dynamite. Like there is incredible life-transforming truth in this book. So with this in mind, let me jump in. I want to read to you. We're going to read together Galatians chapter 1. You can follow in your Bibles. It'll be on the screen as well. But let me read God's word to us this morning. This is what it says. It says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God and our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even with, if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse." As we have already said now, so now, and I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I could not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard my previous way of life, of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. 
Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praise God because of me. This is God's word to us this morning. And the thing that is so amazing about the book of Galatians is that the book of Galatians is a book about the gospel. I don't know if you noticed there, but the number of times the word gospel showed up just in verses 6 to 12 alone, six times the word gospel shows up in those six verses. And right at the start, Paul is introducing the subject of Galatians, and it's about the gospel. It's about the essential message of Christianity. That's what the gospel means, the essential message of Christianity. It's about this basic message, the basic facts, the basic, basic truths of Christianity. And uh, that's, that's what this book is about. Paul is showing us this straight up front. And the, the, the word gospel means good news. That's what it means. And notice it's good news, not good advice. Good advice is something that we have to follow, something that we have to do. But good news is about something that has already taken place, something that is already done, something that is historical reality. And the other interesting fact is that it's not written to unbelievers, but actually it's written to people who believe the gospel, right? It's not written to people who are still exploring or not sure they understand the gospel. This is written to a book of Christians who believe in the gospel, and it's explaining the gospel, applying the gospel. It's a book for Christians, a book for people who say they believe already in the gospel, although it's helpful for those on the journey of faith also. But Tim Keller says this. He says, it's very common in Christian circles to assume that the gospel is something mainly for non-Christians. We see it as a set of basic ABC doctrines that are a way in which someone enters the kingdom of God. We often assume that once we're converted, we don't need to hear or study or understand the gospel. We need more advanced material than this. But in this short letter, Paul outlines the bombshell truth that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. It's not only the way to enter the kingdom, it's the way to live as part of the kingdom. It's the way Christ transforms people, churches, and communities. And we're going to watch Paul, Tim says, we're going to watch Paul challenge them and us with the simple truth that Christians need the gospel just as much as non-Christians. Paul will explain to us that the truths of the gospel change life from top to bottom. They transform our hearts, our thinking, and our approach to absolutely everything. That is so true. And so with this in mind, right up front, Paul gives in this letter a comprehensive, it's, it's, it's very concise and, and very short, but a comprehensive outline of what the gospel message is. He does this right up front in the salutation. He doesn't muck around. But he wants to start to say, Make, remember the gospel. Let me explain it to you again. And he begins with explaining who we are. He says, remember who you are. And he says that you are helpless and lost. That's what the word rescue implies in verse 4. 
One of my favorite TV shows, I think I've said it before, is Bondi Rescue. I love watching it. I'm always on the edge of my seat, um, wondering if they're going to rescue the person in time as they head out there to do the rescue. But here's what I've noticed on the show. That whenever the team um, sees someone in trouble, when they race down the beach, they jump on, the, you know, on their paddleboard or their jet ski and head out to the person drowning, never when I've watched the show have I ever seen them when they do that, get out there, then in that moment, throw them a book on how to swim and say, read this. Often they've barely got their head above water. Throw them a book and say, just read this book on how to swim and I'll see you back in the beach shortly. I've never seen that take place at all. When they go out to rescue, what do they do? They are there to pull them out of the water in that moment and to rescue them. That is what takes place. In the same way, this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. I don't know if you realize this. But the founders of every other religion came to teach rather than to rescue. They didn't come to rescue. Right, but Jesus was a great teacher, we know that. But when Paul gives this nutshell version of the gospel of Jesus' ministry, he notes, makes no mention of the fact that Jesus is a great teacher. Why? Because Jesus came first and foremost to rescue us. He didn't come to give us a guidebook on how to be rescued or how to live our lives. He, he actually came first. He did give us good teaching to follow for our lives, but he came first and foremost as our rescuer, as our saviour, because that is what we needed more than anything. We needed rescuing. And a full understanding of the gospel begins with us understanding that we cannot save ourselves, right? that we need a saviour to rescue us. Secondly, Paul explains what Jesus did. How did Jesus rescue us? It says there, he says, he gave himself for our sins. And the trouble with the word for in, in this English here is that the word for is a bit vague. When we say it, our understanding of it, the word for could mean because of our sins, or it could mean on behalf of us, or on behalf of our lives, our sin. Fortunately, in the Greek, there are two different words. The Greek delineates the two meanings. And so we know that the meaning of this word here is on behalf of. This is saying right up front that Jesus didn't just die in some general way because we were sinners, but he actually died in our place on behalf of us because we were sinners. He came and he stood in for us. He was our substitute. And this is really important for us to understand. I read a news story recently about a, a mum by the name of Josephine Williamson who actually died saving her two young children who were drowning. In the news article, Sydney Morning Herald, it said that when she saw her children struggle in the water, Josephine didn't consider her own safety, but jumped into the lake to save them. Miss Williamson drowned, not being a strong swimmer herself, but because of her actions, her two young children survived and were helped to shore by a family friend's son. The article said her impulse to save and ignore the risk to her own life is called rescue altruism by water safety experts. And that's where the rescuer sacrifices their life so that the other might live. She died to save them. In Ernest Gordon's memoir of being a prisoner in a, a Japanese um, World War II um, prisoner of war camp, he recounts at the end of each day 
of forced labor, the guards would count the shovels. And on this particular day, one was apparently missing. And the furious guards threatened the prisoners of war that unless the guilty person came forward and confessed, that, that, that he would kill them all. And he cocked his gun, ready to start shooting in this moment. And, and when this took place, at that moment, one prisoner stepped forward and said, I did it. And he stood quietly at attention. He didn't open his mouth and as he was beaten to death in front of all the other prisoners. And when they all got back to camp, they counted the shovels again and they realized that they were all there. They'd actually just miscounted the shovels. But that man had sacrificed himself to save them all. Why do these stories move us? It's because we know from the mundane corners of life to the most dramatic that all Life-changing love is actually substitutionary sacrifice, isn't it? Life-transforming love is a love that substitutes and sacrifices itself for us. We know that anyone who has ever done anything that really made a difference in our lives, made a sacrifice, stepped in, gave something or paid something or bore something so that we would not have to. We know this deep within our hearts. And what happened on the cross was that God came and he substituted himself for us. We deserve to die on the cross. But Jesus came and died for us. The righteous, loving Father humbled himself to become, humbled himself to become in and through his only Son, flesh, sin, and curse for us in order to redeem us without compromising his own character. The famous theologian C.H. Spurgeon said, my entire theology can be tied up in four words. Jesus died for me, is what he said. Jesus died for me. And this is at the heart of the life-transforming truth of the gospel. And then Paul explains what the Father did in this moment. And he said that God accepted the work of Christ on our behalf by raising Jesus from the dead and by giving us the grace and peace that Christ has won and achieved for us on the cross through his sacrifice. The peace that we long for in our hearts that comes firstly through peace with God, that we might know peace in our hearts. And finally, why God did it. This was done alone out of his grace, not because of anything we have done, but according to the will of our God and Father. We see here in the start of this letter, there is no indication of any other motivation or cause for Christ's mission, except the will of God, his love for humanity. There is nothing in us which merits salvation. It is sheer grace that God would do this. That is why Paul says the only one who gets the glory forever is God alone. But if we contributed to our rescue, if we had rescued ourselves, or if God had seen something deserving of rescue in us or useful for his plan in us, then we could sort of pat ourselves on the back and say, well, you know, look at the part I played in saving my life. But the biblical gospel, Paul is showing here it's clear that salvation from first to last is God's doing. It's his calling, his plan, his action, his work. And so it is he who deserves all the glory for all time. It's interesting to see how Martin Luther actually put it. If, if we go back to that little piece out of William Holland's journal 
about how his life was transformed. He said at a a certain point when Luther was summarizing the epistle of the Galatians that his burden fell off, everything changed in his whole life. And what were the words that Luther said? What was the essence of what Luther was saying here? Let me go back. I want to read you just a little more of that passage that they read to each other. He says um, that at the words where Luther said, what have we then nothing to do Know nothing but only to accept of him who of God is made unto us our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. At those words there came such a power over me that I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love I burst into tears. This is the gospel. This is the message of the gospel, gospel, the gospel of grace through faith in Christ alone. Salvation is, is received, it's not achieved. I want you to hear that this morning. And this is the humbling truth that lies at the heart of Christianity. We love to be our own saviors. I don't know if you've noticed this. Our hearts love to manufacture glory for themselves. So we find messages, messages of Self-salvation, we find them extremely attractive, in fact. Whether they are religious, keep these rules and you earn eternal blessing, or secular messages of grab hold of these things so you can experience you know, the best life now. But the gospel comes and turns them all upside down. And it says you are in such a helpless and hopeless position that you need a rescue that has nothing to do with you at all. When those people are drowning, their heads barely above water, there is nothing they can do. In fact, often they hinder the rescuer trying to rescue them in those moments. And then it says, God in Jesus provides a rescue which gives you far more than any false salvation your heart may love to chase. All the self-salvation plans we follow end up being empty, end up leaving us frustrated, depressed, in a place of hopelessness, but Jesus came with his rescue plan for us. This is the good news of the gospel. And then Paul goes on to raise the critical issue that is facing the Galatian believers, and it's the fact that the message of this gospel that he's just outlined is being perverted. We read in verse 7, a group of teachers in Galatia are now insisting that the Gentile Christians, the non-Jewish Christians, practice all the traditional ceremonial customs of the law of Moses as the Jewish Christians did. And they taught that the Gentiles had to observe all the dietary laws uh, and to be circumcised for full acceptance, to be completely pleasing to God. And by insisting on Christ plus anything else as a requirement for full acceptance by God, these teachers We're presenting a whole different way of relating to God from the one that Paul had given them, from the the true message of the gospel. And the word pervert in, in English translators' effort to render this Greek word, it actually literally means to reverse or to turn inside out. That's what this word pervert means. So Paul is saying here the message of the gospel has actually been reversed by these Judaizers that are coming in and adding something to the gospel. How could this be? Well, the gospel is actually all about a particular order. I don't know if you realize this. Let me ask you this question just to reflect on in your own heart and mind this morning. Do you, does God love you, and as a result, therefore, you love him and lead a good life? 
Or do you come to God, give yourself in love, and promise to lead a good life, and as a result, therefore, God loves you? Which is it in your mind and your heart today as you read those two statements or think about them? Does he accept us, and therefore, we live a good life? Or do we live a good life, and therefore, God accepts us? Which is it for you this morning? Well, as we've seen in Paul's introduction, the order of the gospel is God accepts us and then we follow him. But other religious systems, they have it the other way around. They've flipped it around. We must give God something and then he accepts us. So in verse 7, Paul says that any teaching which adds keeping Mosaic ceremonial law to faith in Christ reverses the gospel. We're adding anything else to that for that matter reverses the gospel. He's saying if you add anything to Christ as a requirement for acceptance with God, if you start to say, to be saved, I need the grace of Christ plus something else, you completely reverse the order of the gospel and you make it in that moment null and void is what Paul says. That's why in verse 6, Paul says that the false teachers are producing a different gospel, which he then quickly um, qualifies as being really no gospel at all, is what he says. Literally, Paul says, another gospel which is not a gospel. This is really clear here in what Paul is saying. That means that the gospel message by its very nature cannot be changed even slightly without being lost, is what Paul's saying here. It's like a vacuum. Right, if you know much about a vacuum from science at school, you can't allow in some air and say that it's now a 90% vacuum. It doesn't work like that. Or an air-enriched vacuum. It's, that's, it's no longer a vacuum. The moment air comes in, it's either a complete vacuum or no vacuum. It's one or the other. Equally, the message of the gospel is that you are saved by grace through Christ's work and nothing else at all. And as soon as you add anything to it, you have lost it entirely. Martin Luther says these words. He says, there's no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. There is no other alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. And then Paul moves to his own testimony his own story of how life-transforming this message of the gospel is. And he introduces his testimony. The rest of this chapter begins in verse 10. He says these words. He says, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And then he goes on to explain how his life has been transformed by this message you see, understanding the gospel in its correct order actually leads to radical obedience in our lives. Radical obedience. Why? Because it removes from within us this man-pleasing spirit, this, this drive, this desire to win the approval of other people, the approval of men. The Bible talks about the sin of man-pleasing under a number of different headings and phrases. When you put them all together, there is a surprising amount of material on it. Proverbs 29, 25 says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare. Right? The fear of other, what other people think, the fear of others, is actually the opposite of fear of God. 
In the Old Testament, the fear of God does not simply mean to be frightened by him, but to be filled with awe and wonder at who God is. There's like an attraction. His his greatness just um, compels us, and we're in awe of that. And therefore, the fear of man must refer to a view of people or a particular person maybe in your life or a group of people that causes you to elevate their importance to hold them in awe, to crave their approval, and to fear their disapproval. I don't know if you've got some situations or people like that in your life. It's a situation in which you desire for their blessing. The desire that you have for their blessing amounts to adoration and worship, and in which you give some form of human approval. The rights and power over your heart then, then go to someone who only God should have. It belongs to God alone. And it means you'll be devastated by the loss of their approval. If you feel criticized or condemned by them, then you will feel as though you're being criticized or condemned by God. And the fear of man presents itself in many different ways. When Saul disobeyed God in 1 Samuel 15 verse 24, it was because he was afraid of public opinion. And so in that moment, he chose, his fear of man was greater than his fear of God, and he followed man instead of God's plan. We know how that ended up in Saul's life. When Samson gave in to Delilah in Judges 16, it was because he was afraid of losing her attention in that moment. Elsewhere, Paul mentions another very common form that we might call eye service. He talks about this in Ephesians and Colossians. It means to do a job only to the degree that you get approval of or reward from those over you. And if you work in that way, You'll do inconsistent, shoddy, half-hearted work. You'll never create anything for the excellence and the joy of creation and a job well done. An old fable that has been passed down for generations tells about an elderly man who was traveling with a boy and a donkey. And as they walked through a village, the man was leading the donkey and the boy was walking behind. And the townspeople said the old man was a fool for not riding the donkey. So to please them, he climbed up onto the animal's back. When they came to the next village, the people said the old man was cruel to let the child walk while he enjoyed the ride. So to please them, he got off and set the boy on the animal's back and continued on his way. In the third village, people accused the child of being lazy for making the old man walk, and the suggestion was made that they both ride. And so the man climbed on as well, and they set off again. In the fourth village, the townspeople were indignant at the cruelty to the donkey because he was made to carry two people. The frustrated man was last seen carrying the donkey down the road. (laughs) We smile at this story, but it makes a good point, doesn't it? It makes a good point. We can't please everybody. We can't please everybody. And if we try, we end up carrying a heavy burden, frustrated, confused, worn out. That's what it leads to in our lives. But the gospel sets us free from the need for man's approval because we know that our heavenly Father loves us and accepts us. And nothing that we could do could make him love us more. Nothing we could do could make him love us less. The gospel produces confident and fearless followers of Jesus, doing what is right without concern for the approval and good opinion of others, but rather instead for an audience of one. 
it leads, do you see how this leads to radical obedience in our life? One, if we have the order out, is we're obeying to try and get God to accept us. The other, when we understand we're accepted in love, it leads to radical obedience. Imagine a father watching his much-loved son play cricket for the team his father coaches. As he sits in the stand, he loves his son fully and completely. If his son forgets his father's instruction and gets out, it, it won't change his love for him or his approval of him one bit. The son is assured of his father's love regardless of his performance, but the son will long to score a half century or to hit a six, not for himself though, not to gain his father's love, but for his father because he is already loved. If he doesn't know his father loves him, his efforts will be for himself to win that love, but because he knows his father already loves him. His efforts are for his father to please him. Do you see the difference? It's, it's massive, the difference. And the Christian, when the Christian is assured of God's love and approval, God, that God is pleased with us in Christ because of what Christ has done, then it makes this transformation in our lives to be able to live free from the fear of man, to live fully for God. And the Christian longs to obey God, not for himself, so that God will save him, but out of gratitude to God. And he knows he is already saved because he knows that God has already saved him. And the gospel brings us a new, profound experience of God's love. This lessens the sting and the fear of others' disapproval. And we know what, what greater value could you possibly have than to be delighted in and sacrificed for by the maker of the universe? What greater value could we know than this? And the gospel is both this powerful assurance and a powerful motivation for us. When we get, grab hold of it and we understand the truth of it, it's this powerful motivation to live in radical obedience. And I want to tell you this morning that the most important thing about you is not what other people think about you or have said about you. The most important thing about you and the most important thing about me is what God says, who he says we are, who he says I am. And when we let this truth, the truth of the gospel, take root deep in our hearts, it enables us to live freely and fully for him in a radical obedience like we could never, ever do before. Maybe you're here this morning and you're hearing this word, and you realize that you have been living to please others than living to please God. Maybe you've been allowing others to define your value and your worth as you hear God's word this morning, the Spirit of God revealing this to you. Maybe you worry too much about what others think, striving to win the approval of others. Maybe you realize it's the things that this world say give you value and worth that you are allowing to define you and to direct your life. Things like success and popularity and money and power. You're, these things that the world says define our value and worth, you're letting these things direct your life. Instead, God wants you to know this morning that if you have come to faith and trust in him through Jesus, that you are already accepted in Christ, that he loves you, and that we are free to live because of this in, in radical obedience to him. And it's only in him, only in understanding who he says we are, that we will be able to live and experience the peace and the joy that only he can bring to our lives. 
Or maybe you're here this morning and you realize you've had the order of the gospel wrong. Or, or maybe you knew what it was, but you flipped it back the other way. You realize that. You've been trying to live a good life in order to get God to love you and accept you. That's what you've been doing. That's what you thought the order of salvation was. But instead, today, you realize that first we need to come to this understanding that Jesus has come to rescue us, to save us. And when we understand that we are accepted by God because of Jesus and his death on the cross, then from that place we are able to live, live to follow Jesus, live in the freedom and, and, and the love and acceptance that he has brought to our lives. And he wants you to live for him today in a radical new life of obedience in the understanding, understanding this truth. Or maybe you're here today and you thought salvation was about your good works and your effort. You thought that salvation was achieved, not received. And that's always been your understanding of the gospel. But this morning, as you've heard this truth from the first chapter of Galatians, explaining the, the core message of the gospel, you realize that actually you've been trying to do that. You've been trying to earn your salvation, earn right standing with God. Today, you realize that actually it's about receiving this free gift of grace. It's not about what you do, but it's about what Jesus has done for you. If that is you this morning as well, I want to encourage you right at the start of this series just to, to say yes to Jesus. Or if you're just hearing this for the first time, to jump into Alpha Course tonight to understand more of this truth. It is a life-transforming truth. It really is. And so I want to pray that God will just continue to speak to us by his Holy Spirit now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, great God. We thank you for the amazing message of the gospel, the message of your grace, salvation through Christ alone, Lord. We thank you for Paul's own testimony here. Here is a person who in some ways lived an incredibly good life. And yet on the flip side, Lord, he did some terribly bad things as well, but it just reveals to us the gospel, Lord, is, is for every single person. Those who think we've lived a good life or those who feel like they're far from you, Lord, but the message of the gospel is not about what we have done, but it's about what you have done for us. And we thank you for this truth, great God. And I pray for any here this morning who may be have had an understanding of a relationship with you based on their own efforts that salvation is through their own works. Well, Lord, I pray this morning by your Holy Spirit that you'll help them to understand this truth as those believers did at the start of the Great Awakening. They got hold of this truth. Salvation is through grace, by grace, through faith in you, Lord Jesus. I pray that people's hearts will be open to this truth this morning. I really pray that, great God. Lord, for others here, you just feel like, because we've heard this message, Lord, that it's, we've been living to please others rather than to please you, great God. Those here this morning who feel like that they've been living to win the approval of those around us, or the things this world say define our value and worth, and Lord, we all fall into this trap. This is every one of us here today, in fact, Lord. We all fall into this trap. Lord, I pray you'll help us this morning to allow the truth of the gospel to bed down deep in our hearts today to set us free from that, Lord. Instead, to be able to live in radical obedience to you, great God, to follow you with all of our hearts because of all that you have done for us. A love response, great God. And Lord, I pray you'll help us to live in the light of this truth, Lord, that you would compel us as we get hold of this to want to share this good news. This is good news, great God. This is the best news in all the world. Thank you that it's not good advice, great God, but it's good news about what you have already done for us. And so, Lord, I pray as we let these truths take hold of our heart afresh this morning, no matter where we are on the journey, exploring faith or being Christians for many years, Lord, that it will compel us, Lord, 
to know you more deeply, Lord, to know more of your love and your power and your presence in our lives. Lord, and compel us to share this good news with the world as well. This is our prayer. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song as we conclude this morning. And it talks about the truth of what Jesus has done for us. And it talks about the truth that we are who Jesus says we are, who our Heavenly Father says we are. And so I want to invite you just to stand with me as we sing this song, allow this to continue just to be part of our response, our thanks, our praise and worship this morning. Let's stand together as we sing these great words of truth. Oh Lord, we thank you for this great truth, Lord, that we sing. Thank you, Lord, that you have come, that you've rescued us, great God, that you have shown us how much you love us and care about us through the cross. It leaves no shadow of a doubt in our mind. And so we pray this morning we'll live in the light of this truth, Lord. Help us to apply it to every area of our lives, Lord. Bless us, Lord, as we head out this week, we pray, in our family relationships, in our work situations, wherever, Lord, you take us, Lord, we will live in the light of these truths, Lord, we pray. And so, Lord, I pray your blessing on each and every one. I pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said... Amen. Please be seated. I do want to mention too these Bible gift packs. If you'd like to know more about this message, what it means to have a relationship with God through Christ, we'd love to give these to you as well. Free gift from us. They'll be down the front at the info table as well. God bless you.